We have a couple of water parks around Minneapolis, but where people go if they really want to get out is the Wisconsin Dells. Have you ever heard of the Wisconsin Dells? No. Uh -uh. Is that a band? Is that like a a sibling trio? (laughs) That's what it sounds like. It does. Yeah, the Wisconsin Dells live Friday featuring guest mouth organist Betty Sue. Tom Knight on the steel guitar. Playing live from the fair. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. And welcome to episode 81. We're talking about data. We've talked about a number of the, I was going to say softer topics, but that's not, that's probably not fair. A little more hard and fast numbers this time as it relates, especially to personalization and, you know, the kind of the creepiness factor scale. That's one of our favorite topics, isn't it? That's right. And that is Chris Boyer, who joins uh, me each and every week. I'm, of course, Reed Smith, and we're delighted that you've joined us for episode 81. Welcome. We made it past 80, Reed, and I could see 100 from here. That's right. 100 more or 100 total? Well, I think we'll go past 100 ourselves, but yeah, I can see the number 100 coming up. Yeah, yeah let's, start, let's start with 20 more, and then we'll see where that goes. So That's right. And we should do something special for episode 100, Reed. That's a good idea. If anybody has any great ideas or suggestions on what we should do for episode 100, and, and it can't be like... You know, we're going to give away a car or something. I mean, we're not, we're not Oprah or anything like that. But, but uh, if you've got any great ideas of what we should do for episode 100, um, we've done some different things in the past. Uh, let us know. We certainly appreciate the feedback. Uh, we cer- certainly shouldn't, uh, could not have gotten to this point without our sponsors. And uh, maybe let's pause for just a second and uh, hear about one of our sponsors, Loyal. Uh, the healthcare consumer wants to know what other patients have to say, and they definitely pay attention to those little numbers and the little stars next to the physician's name online. They sure do. And for health systems, embracing those doctor reviews and those star ratings is a win-win strategy, but you have to do it the right way. That's right. So Loyal's AI-driven platform provides health systems with the tools needed to amplify patient feedback and guide those very patients through their digital journey. And it's not just a platform. Loyal has a team of engineers, marketers, data scientists, and they have the experience of partnering with the nation's leading health systems to help promote patient feedback online. There you go. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what they do and what they have to offer, even schedule a demo, you can visit them online at loyalhealth.com. That's loyalhealth.com. Okay. So data personalization. Well, you know, Reed, what started off this topic thought in my head was an article I found on Medium that was written by a patient. And it has a really good link-baity title, too. Let me read it to you. It's called Eaten Alive, A Patient's Perspective on De-Identification of Personal Health Information. Does that make you want to click on it? Absolutely. And actually, you know, after you do click on it, there's a picture of a lion staring you right in the face. So <laughs> yeah, it is. No, that's it's good. That's good. Uh, again, we'll have, we'll have a link. We're going to mention a couple of articles and so we'll obviously have links to those in the show notes. You might like to check them out, uh, may even tweet them out during the week. So be sure to follow us online. And so the, this patient who wrote this article or blog post or opinion piece, I'm not sure what to call it, actually starts it off by really taking down HIPAA and saying, and in the first line was, it's, uh, she said, HIPAA is outdated and it enables a gray area that's damaging the patients, the healthcare ecosystem, and the health economy entirely. That's a great way to kind of bring you right into the article there. Yeah, it's interesting. So this is one of those cases, and I'm pretty sure we've said it on here, maybe even a number of times. Man, there's a big picture of a snake in this thing, too. Good grief. <laughs> Technology has quickly outpaced the law in a number of mm-hmm. cases, and I think this is a really good example of that. 
when did HIPAA come out? It was like the mid nineties, right? Is that right? Did yeah, that right? something like that. Yeah. 97 mm-hmm. or something. Think about how the world from a technology perspective has changed since then. Well, we were on Windows 98 or something at that point. Mm-hmm. There was no smartphone. There wasn't much of an internet for that matter. I don't know how you continue to look at HIPAA in a way that is, I mean, not that it's not productive. 1996, by the way. I don't know. We've just, we've quickly outpaced all this. I think that's what she's getting at, right? She sure is. I mean, what she's saying is, and it's very specifically what she's talking about is the whole fact that HIPAA has written into its laws and regulations that if you de-identify patient data, that data can be used without any kind of risk of legal responsibility by a health system or by any kind of health service company. Right. So the, the whole point, right, is that if you take away the patient's name, that data is pretty much something that can be used for a variety of different reasons. Even if it's not the reason you initially gave the data. And so, again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later in a, a specific example. But I, I don't know. That That's um, hmm, that's interesting. I, I, again, never really thought of it that way as far as if it's de-identified then you can just do whatever with it. And I think some of the problem with this is, you know, what does de-identified really mean? And can it be re-identified at some point in the future? And then what does that mean? That's a good question. I mean, when you think about de-identification, when you think about HIPAA, right, they have certain elements that we consider that if all these elements exist, then that is something that's considered PHI or personal health information, and that should be protected. And that includes the name, the date of birth, a a variety of different other factors that could be, you know, associated with that particular individual. And that needs to be protected at all costs. But what's happened, Reed, in this space, in the healthcare space is, if you take away the name and the specific date of birth, but you keep on other factors, other data factors, like maybe group them into an age range, right? Not a specific date of birth, but an age range. Yeah. If you if you group them into a gender and then you pull over all of their diagnosis codes and all of the things that they've been treated with and, you know, any other kind of comorbidities that are in there, that's still considered by HIPAA as de-identified and pretty much fair game. Huh. So there's an upside to this too, right? So, I mean, the idea would be is that the more data you can get in one place, the more valuable it becomes. Now, that's both good and bad, I guess. That's right. So, I mean, you could potentially find, in the greatest sense of the word, I guess, you could find uh, a cure, right? Or uh, things that work, don't work, you know, that kind of thing, that much faster. I think that was the purpose of this, right? Is that yep. this data can then be used by data scientists, it can be used by a research uh, on a research purpose, it could be used by even organizations that do pharmaceutical research or do medical device research to really determine and do some data analysis to determine if their products or the way that they're 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 taking care of patients is actually working, and use that to improve their products, processes, etc. That's the positive side of this, right? It is, and that's a big positive. Uh, at least I hope it. I hope it's a big positive, but that, that's not always the case, right? Bring on the data brokers, mm-hmm. right? Bring on the people uh, that actually use this data in a way that maybe is a little bit different than what it was originally intended for, at least for the authors of HIPAA many years ago. And um, as the author states, HIPAA does a, does every person with a diagnosis a significant disservice by fostering a flawed economic model where anonymized health data can run rampant in the ecosystem of every third vendor party's benefit and every patient's expense. Um, yes. So to what expense, though, I guess would be my question. Now, I'm not saying, you know, the, the example in here, I think, and an easy one to point to is the 23andMe scenario, right? So people... Uh, voluntarily paid 23andMe uh, a certain sum of money. I don't remember what it is, 100 bucks or something. And you do the little testing, right? The privacy policy that, that everybody agrees to to do that, otherwise you can't do it, 
right? I mean, if you don't check the box, you don't get to participate. Uh, it emphasizes the use of that data for research and scientific findings. And I think when you read that or you think through that, you go, oh, okay, that sounds like a good thing. Uh, I don't mind. I agree, you know, or whatever. What, what it did not, I think, explicitly call out and what she talks about in this article was that the, <laughs> the company was going to run and sell it for commercial profit, basically. Much like you would just, you know, if you want to go buy a laundry list of email addresses, you could, you know, to send emails to. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really kind of that simple. It was like, hey, we have a whole bunch of data in one place. This looks awfully valuable. I wonder if somebody would pay us for this. Well, of course they will. But but is that still bad? Well, I'm not sure if that's bad. It depends. I guess it depends on what you do with it and who you sell it to. True. I mean, if you think about it, uh, let's think of, a, of another very famous parallel that's been in the news recently over the last year, which is Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, right? Yes. Same yep. kind of idea, right? You sign up for Facebook. You sign up for your terms of agreement, and Facebook says, we're going to use this data to better... I'm not sure what the terms exactly say, because I didn't really read them. No one does. No one does, right? But I think that people opted in to say, oh, if they're going to be able to start sharing data with me and what my friends like, that's going to be a more meaningful thing. Well, what Facebook ended up doing is selling this data to third-party companies. Cambridge Analytica sounds like a research institution, maybe associated with Cambridge or not. (laughs) At least located there, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And then to use that data to not only personalize and target uh, campaign messaging, but then use they themselves using that data to sell it to foreign entities. And then all of a sudden we got this big mess, right? And then all, all of a sudden Mark Zuckerberg is in front of the Congress testifying about how that wasn't really the intent and yada, yada, yada. We know the, we know the rest of the story right. while it's still unfolding. But I mean, is that the same thing that happens here with 23andMe? Where are they selling it to? Who's buying it? What are they doing with it? And my concern, I guess, with the whole thing is it. So again, going back to the Facebook example, if when you were signing up for Facebook, they said, "Hey, you know, by the way, we may, we may sell this information to some third parties that would do additional research and maybe you know send you additional things that you'd be interested in." Would you sign up? Probably, because otherwise, you don't get to use Facebook, and all your friends are. Now, this is a little bit different, but still, if you signed up for 23andMe and you really did read everything and they'd said, hey, you know, by the way, once we get enough of this data together, there's a good chance we'll probably license it or sell the information to other research firms, to you know, biotech and pharma or whoever. Mm-hmm. Would you still do it? Probably. I think the problem comes is, and unfortunately, we don't really know the downside until the downside happens. Again, back to the Facebook example, would you have predicted it to go down the way it did? Probably not. You know, it's like, well, is it going to be irritating potentially? Eh, Maybe. I don't know. But again, the benefit outweighs the concern, right? And that's the problem here is like, I don't know what level to be concerned. What if the terms of service said explicitly with 23andMe or with Facebook or whatever, is that we're going to sell your data in order for other companies to market themselves better to you? Would you sign up for that? Sure. Why not? I mean, they're already going to do it, right? So at least it's more tailored. But again, I don't, I don't know what that means. I know what it means in my mind, like, oh, Great. Everything in my life will be more specific to me. That's helpful. Is that in reality what happens? No. I don't know. We're getting to that weird spot where it's like, is this all just out there anyway somewhere? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? like, would you be better off just not knowing? Or maybe would you be better off knowing 100% transparently? Because that's what the point of this author was, was getting to. She is advocating for the fact that she wants complete and 100% transparency these companies need to request access to your data and clearly explain what the intent is with that information. Who's got that kind of time to monitor that? That's the problem, right? I don't want that. Like, like I already get enough emails uh, and phone calls and everything else. The last thing I need is like more people buy the 10x, 20x, 1000x, whatever the number is, asking me the same question over and over again. You know, again, that may be a little oversimplification, but 
who's going to manage that? And think about that from, from the opposite side, from the commercialization side of the equation. What are we missing out on? Because they now have to go through this arduous process of asking individuals. This reminds me of what just recently happened in Europe, and we mentioned it before in our show, the GDPR, right? The Government Data Protection Regulation Act, in which everybody in Europe or under the EU, uh, any business that actually brokers in people's data have to be more transparent about their data, uh, the data that they're using, and allow people to opt out if they choose to out of these communications. So in Europe, example, because you don't have enough time, right? And maybe that doesn't really bother you that much. You could just say, yeah, you know what? I don't care too much. I'm just going to let them go ahead and do it until there's some kind of grievance or, you know, issue Then I'll probably pay attention. Mm -hmm. But others that are much more regulated or or much more concerned about how their data is used probably will very a- actively go out there and start opting out of everything. Good grief. I, I swear to you, I unsubscribe from the same like nine emails every week. I, I don't understand it. Like, I don't know where they go. I don't, I don't know why it doesn't work. And I'm just, you know, I don't have enough time or I'm too lazy to actually, anyway, that's a whole other deal. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the right, the right answer is here because again, in a perfect world, the upside, I think, outweighs the concern in most cases. I just don't know how you measure that. I think that's that's a fair point, right? But I do know from a marketing lens that having access to that data and being able to utilize that data to start building personalization becomes very important. Yeah. And which leads me to another article that we found on a great website that has the best URL destinationcrm.com. Mm, there's some light reading for your for your weekend or for your <laughs> holiday. What what are you what are you what are you looking at there destinationcrm.com. It's good stuff. They had an article about how much personalization is too much. And and what one thing that they put forward is is that there is still a disconnect between what consumers want and what companies are actually focusing on when it comes to personalization. They, they state that knowing that collecting data is essential to creating a good customer experience, customers seem to be willing to provide it when the data is used to actually create value. So there you go, Reed. If we're going to use data to create value, then you should be okay with us sharing your data with anyone, right? Yeah, if I knew what value meant. Because he, here's, the, here's the problem with that. And the idea of personalization in, in general I think personalization is really generalization to some degree. We're, we're just bucketing people. You know, it's, it's, it's not personalization. It's not down to the person. It's, you know, women between these ages and, you know, people that you know, are interested in this type of a product or service and that kind of thing. I think, yeah, I think most people would be willing to give up a lot of data, especially around experience and, and if they can get actual value out of it, I'm just afraid that people's definition of the word value varies so greatly. That's just awfully hard to do. I think you're right. So some of the things, you know, in this article that they outline, which is, which are good, valuable ways of using personalization could be proactively reaching out to customers instead of waiting for a problem to arise. So I could see that application in healthcare, right? So proactively reaching out to to patients potentially um, before you know they may have some issues with their disease state. Data can also be used to trigger automated or human assisted interactions when a product or service may not be working properly. If they're calling a call center and the call center is backed up and they want to just schedule an online appointment. You know, you could use data to personalize that experience if you have access to their data. That could be a good use, a valuable use. Or like when telemarketers spoof a local phone number to try to get you to answer. That's good personalization <laughs> as well. Good grief. I swear, I don't know how many calls I've blocked about solar panels in the last week that are coming from local numbers. But anyway... But one thing they talk about, though, is the is that companies should be transparent about what information they're capturing, how it's going to be used, how they're securing it. Then, then the idea that customers need to take some ownership in, in the same equation there to understand what's happening. Is that too big of an ask, though? 
well, again, I mean, I think there's going to be some people that really care and there's going to be others that don't care that much, right? I, again, coming back to this concept of companies being transparent about what they do with your data. I think that we're sensing a theme here, aren't we? Mm-hmm. This is something that we should be thinking about. I mean, may, it, it may be that that your consumers, your customers, your patients, whatever, may not really care. Some of them may actively just say whatever, just do whatever you want, as long as you know you're you're staying out of my hair and you're not marketing to me unnecessarily. I'm cool with it. But then others will be like wanting to be more active and wanting to understand where their data is being used, how it's being used, and basically, you know, kind of opting out if they didn't want that information. Yeah, the opting out part, I feel like that's going to be kind of like erasing yourself from the internet type activity. Based on my aforementioned experience trying to unsubscribe from emails, th- this is a hard one. I, you know, but it is ultimately, I feel like it's the responsibility of the company or of the brand to make sure that what they're doing, you know, they've got some sort of, you know, internal accountability in place, mm-hmm. uh, that they understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, you know, where are those lines? The line between cool and creepy. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. What is useful? What is what has utility? What is enhancing the patient experience and what flips over that line and becomes creepy. Accenture did a study on this, the pulse check survey, where they talked to 8,000 global consumers. 83% of consumers are willing to share their data to enable a personalized experience. Quote, as long as businesses are transparent about how they are going to use it and customers have control over it. Oh, there you go again. This, this sounds like a whole other job. For consumers, it's funny. So that that's eighty three percent, right? So pretty much everybody's going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine with it. That's fine with it as long as they tell me what they're doing, and you know, I can, you know, control it or opt out or you know, whatever the whatever their control it means to them, right? Along those same lines, they said that forty one percent of those folks, forty one percent of consumers, identified text messaging as they walk by a physical store as creepy. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still in that place, right? Like, now, honestly, if I was walking by a hospital and it was like bariatric seminar starting in 15 minutes, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. Like, what are we, <laughs> what are we doing? You know, but if, it, if you're walking by the pizza place and it's like stop in now for half off or, you know, buy one slice, get one free or whatever, th- then that's a little, it's not quite as intrusive, right? And you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool or handy or whatever, especially if it's around a meal time, it's not quite as personal. So I think some of this is like, how personal is the text message? How personal is the personalization? You know, are we just talking in generalities? Are we talking about, you know, when you talk about healthcare, then we're getting into a whole nother sphere. Well, how about, you know, it's flu season and you're riding the bus and you're, you get off on a bus stop and there's a clinic right there and you get a text message that says, we're now offering 50% off flu shots, and we see that you haven't taken yours, so come on in. That the, the we see you haven't taken yours part is where it goes <laughs> over the line. <laughs> I think people are still okay with the it's half off flu shots. Right now, the wait is zero minutes or whatever. You know, you would be first in line, whatever. Like, that's all fine because it seems it seems outside of my personal space to some degree. I'm a human. They feel like I should be having one of these. They don't have a weight. You know, when you start pulling in that personalized data of that consumer, that's when I think people 
you know, we'll start going, wait a minute, what's happening here? And that's where you always hear the stories about, yeah, well, then these, you know, pair of shoes started following me around the internet, you know, and all that kind of stuff, right? Because it takes <laughs> into account an action that they took that's now influencing what they're seeing. You know, I think that a lot of times that whole the shoes are following me around the internet thing is because you could see so overtly what that is, right? I was looking at these shoes on the website and they're following me around. People are becoming a little bit more sophisticated in their approach. And so you won't really know specifically if you went to a shoe store and you looked at something on Zappos, you're not going to get that same shoe ad anymore, but they're going to know that and other similar retailers are going to start marketing to you. I, I see that happen right now on on instagram i follow a bunch of you know food instagram channels here in the twin cities mm-hmm. for different restaurants and then all of a sudden i'm getting sponsored ads from other restaurants yeah and i'm like oh so they know my profile which makes sense i will say though next conference we go to maybe it's the atlas conference i'm gonna tie a shoe like onto my belt and have it drag behind me the entire conference <laughs> So when someone's like, what is that? I mean, like, it's the shoes from the internet. They're still following me around. One other thing here, Reed, that was really interesting, a stat that came out of the study, the same Accenture study, where they said 74% of consumers like the idea of what they call a, quote, living style profile. Hmm. What that means is that this profile is created and evolves along with that consumer's needs and tastes. In short, Throughout their you know life cycle, it helps marketers curate the experiences they receive as important to most consumers today, and it evolves. So again, consumers are kind of liking this idea of personalization, but the application of that, that sounds like it could be fraught with a lot of challenges, right? Yeah, I think so. And ultimately, you know, like they mentioned, while brands should rely on all this data and so like all these stats and things that we've talked about are, are good and, and they're good to take into account, but don't get too terribly lost in the numbers. And at the end of the day, if, is if you've got good people in charge that have good common sense, you know, what I want this, does this make sense? Does this sound like a good idea? You know, some of those types of things, really that's what it kind of comes down to. So don't get too terribly lost in the numbers, especially in your hospitals, you know, Think about, okay, well, what, what are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? How can we best interact with these folks? Like what level of personalization would make sense? How do we not offend people? How do we, but, but how do we serve? And it could also be, by the way, one of these things where consumers say, oh yeah, I like the idea of this, but when it actually is applied and, and used, they might get creeped out by that too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I like the idea of personalization unless it gets a little bit too overreaching. And then I don't like the idea of personalization at all. You know, it's that fine, slippery line. Let's be realistic here. Um, we still have a lot of gaps to close if we want to go down the personalization route anyway. There's a study done by Retail Touchpoint Survey. No relation. It's conducted with Oracle. Um, They found that 87% of retailers said personalization has become a bigger priority in 2018. And the reason why is because they want to increase sales. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Again, the shoes falling around the internet thing, right? Like you've looked at it once or you've considered it or whatever it may be. And so they're trying to entice you back. You know, now I think that next level of personalization is to know when you actually did purchase it and quit serving up the same stupid ads of things you already own. But anyway, that's a whole nother deal. Past that, uh, you know, they, they talk about the fact that, you know, most real retailers in this study, you know, they're concentrating actually on email personalization. Oh, okay. Which is a little different. I don't know. Again, we don't, I don't know we've ever done email very well in the hospital world. Some better than others, you know, mainly around affinity groups and some things like that, of course, you know, have done well through the years, but Again, I'm not sure that we've really done that super, super well. Um, I think that's an opportunity and probably a topic for another time. But It was interesting. Email personalization, I can envision that to be like, they know who I am. They may have known if I come to visit their website before and maybe they're, you know, they're sending me things that are related to my interests. Amazon does that all the time. Maybe they're reminding me I left something in the uh, in, in the shopping cart on the website, which is getting a little creepy, but not that bad. Mm-hmm. 
But email, I think, is something we could be a little bit as a consumer, a little bit more forgiving. We kind of expect now emails to be addressed to us. They got the little tags or whatever. Like they, they, they know our email address. So the fact that they know our name or first name yeah, is not a big stretch. So if you think about it, um, they say 74% of retailers are using email for personalization. And then there's a big drop off. 49% are using it online. Hmm. 38% of them are using it in mobile apps. And 28% for mobile web. So think about that drop-off there. Email personalization, I think, is an easy easy thing to do. But then, all of a sudden, once you start using it online and mobile apps and mobile web, it drops off steadily. You know, they talk about the leading barriers for that because that, that is, that's a huge drop. Um, not quite in half, obviously, but it's, it's pretty substantial, especially when you get down to, like, mobile. But barriers being things like uh, maintaining a comprehensive database uh, for real-time consumer inf- information. So again, if they've signed up somewhere, we know usually first name, last name, email address, maybe phone number, zip code, you know, that kind of thing. But email makes it a little bit easier because they've they've opted in versus just like visiting something mm-hmm. like a website or a web property. In- integrating structured and unstructured data is another barrier. And we know that. We've talked about that, the interoperability of data and using data. I mean, in, in hospital systems, the link between EMRs and your CRM could be vast and wide. And a little bit later in this podcast, when we interview Justin Rodriguez, he'll, he'll get into this a little bit more and you know really talk about some of the challenges that health systems are facing and, and ways that they can actually start to develop a strategy around that. But you know, I think the article ends, interestingly enough, it says... Only 6% of retailers indicated the importance of personalization across all levels of the organization as something that's an imperative thing to them. Yeah, it's because they just don't understand it. They don't know what it is. And it's so hard to do. So getting back to our original article, Reed, that we started this show off with, uh-huh. do you think that this patient who's concerned about how using patient data, do you think that, you know, is there really a, a need here to be alarmed? Is there a need or should you be? Because I think those are two different questions. I'm not sure that, in all honesty, uh, I'm not sure you being concerned matters. I think a lot of this is going to happen whether we're concerned or not. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else. They've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems. Kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! All right, Reed. Let's face off on this particular topic. We've been talking a lot about patient data and when the appropriate use of patient data and data in general can be used for personalization. And for me, I've always been kind of struggling in my mind around this particular question. And I'd be interested to, to face off with you on, on the two sides of the argument here. Is it right for us to use patient data to help populate a marketing CRM? That is, should our CRM be connected to the EMR? And should we be using that patient data to help ourselves market better? Ooh. That is a tough question. I mean, on the marketing side of the equation, obviously, you're more effective. It's more beneficial to the patient, et cetera. Um, Okay, so here's where I kind of come down on this. Uh, Yes, I I think we should connect 
the data source, the, the, the record, if you will, the medical record to our marketing activities if we want to actually be, you know, creating creating a beneficial experience to the patient. Yes, we should. A beneficial experience to the patient. Okay, so the way I see most marketing CRMs used today in hospitals and health systems, it's not about patient experience. It's about how do we can target these people that are be more receptive to respond to one of our marketing campaigns to maybe come in for some kind of particular treatment. Uh, maybe they have a need for orthopedic surgery, or maybe they have a propensity for heart disease. And so we're using that patient data as a way for us to target them better to get them to come in and become a patient. I mean, that's not about experience. That's about patient acquisition. Yes, it's about patient acquisition, but you're acquiring patients that need and can benefit from your services. So I think the experience piece comes in based on you know, predetermined needs, wants, desires, and things like that, based uh, whether it's from an acquisition standpoint or it's folks that have already had interactions with your organization. I mean, if we're, if we're going to do personalization, this is the only way to do it. Hmm. I don't know how else you personalize your efforts if you're not taking into account who they are, what they like, don't like, where they are from a health perspective, and you know what they need to move forward. I think it's very interesting how you argued if a patient is more susceptible to our marketing messages, that equates to a better patient experience. But I'll, I'll take it as it is. <laughs> but the one thing that still bugs me here is, though, we're using their patient data, and their patient data comes from an EMR, and quite frankly, when they sign up for the EMR, they're not signing up for marketing messaging. They're signing up to work better with their and communicate better with their doctors, with the hospitals. They're not saying explicitly, I want marketing messages from you. Well, if your intake paperwork's written correctly, they are. But that's a whole <laughs> different thing. <laughs> I kid, but I don't kid. So yeah, we've never done historically we've never done a very good job relative to like we talked about earlier, email marketing and things like that. And so we don't. Uh, we, there's a disconnect between patient access and the pe- you know people that are dealing with patients that are coming in and marketing, obviously, right? Like they're not concerned with like let me get these email addresses over to marketing for these people that have come into our organization. However, if we're going to create a better patient experience, don't we think we need to connect the dots all the way around? So here are the people that came in. We know that we're able to reach back out to them through drip marketing or whatever it is at at periodic points in the process even. Maybe it's SMS even to understand and measure how they're doing and those types of things. Well, it's really hard to do that without some sort of a CRM classified piece of technology and you know, their personalized information where we can reach out and measure their experience along their journey even. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll concede on that point that for existing patients using uh, the EMR patient data to communicate with them better, I think, okay, I, I can see that how that can potentially lead to a better patient experience. What about using that EMR data to develop personas, propensity models, and then targeting those models against patients or not even patients, people that don't have any interaction with your health system. Now we're starting to go down that slippery slope, right? Now we're starting to actually use patient data to develop a better acquisition profile. And we're going after people that weren't even patients of ours. And that's nothing to do with patient experience now. That's purely sales. Yeah, but you're using patient experience to try to serve the greater population. Is that not good? Uh, well, depends on the health system you work for. But I think in general, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I think, you know, we're, we're somewhere in the middle, like always here. I think it depends on the goals, the motivation. Again, you know, who's in charge and who's running this type of thing. And, you know, why, why are you trying to do this? That's absolutely true. If you actually are using this data to try to further your mission to do what's good, I think then that, you know, then there's a sense of forgivingness that potential patients and patients themselves will have with your organization. Because after all, we're here in the business to promote health and to help our communities get better, right? We're not making any money off of bringing in more patients. We're not? I thought that's what we were trying to do. <laughs> Isn't that how we say in business? 
This is a complicated topic. We're, we're at a different time and place, and and I wonder when we're going to address things like HIPAA relative to where we are in this day and time. But I don't know. Here's where we are. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today I have the privilege to talk to someone that I consider one of the top experts in data, data analysis, and, and data mining, that, uh, and has a lot of experience working with hospitals and health systems in the past. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, my name is Justin Rodriguez. I'm a CRM consultant. I work with companies such as uh, currently now with Trilliant Health, Tenant Health, Vanguard Health, Christus Health, the Mayo Clinic, and small family practices uh, in South Texas. So, But I'm also a CRM consultant and a marketing strategist. With your experience and your background, you do understand the challenges and, and even the benefits of using good data and understanding data. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing with uh, the hospitals and health systems that you're working with. A lot of healthcare systems are, are having trouble kind of figuring out what the consumer is doing outside of their hospital walls, and actually even more so inside their hospital walls. Many of your audience will know that uh, hospital systems have many different uh, EHR or EMR systems, and none of those systems really talk to each other. So when they try to f- you know, dive into their own data and figure out what is Susan or Joe, you know, patient A, patient B, doing in my healthcare system, how are they accessing my services, it's very hard for them to figure out what is going on. And then coupled with that, trying to get good data sources, maybe outside data sources to help answer that is also a challenge as well, because it only, you know, a lot of these data sources only give you a one-sided view or or a partial view of what's happening. And it's not a a full, you know, continuous 360 picture. You know, for the most part, the, the industry as a whole, uh, it's extremely hard to find good data for a healthcare marketer and utilize it in a way that's not destroying anyone's privacy rights or privacy issues or you know dealing with any PHI or HIPAA violations. So I've heard this term, Justin, maybe you can help me define it a little bit better, longitudinal data. What does that mean? I think it's it's used a lot. And moreover, I mean, is that standardized across the industry? No, longitudinal data is a, a term that has been starting to gain steam and momentum across the industry. And what longitudinal data means is looking at the continuum of a person's health encounters or health visits across not just one facility, but many different sites of you know service. If you look at an example of Joe Smith, Joe Smith would go to the Minute Clinic or Rite Aid for an urgent care visit. He'd also go to them for getting uh, pharmaceutical drugs. Maybe he's seen an allergist, so he goes to an allergy specialist. And then maybe he, you know, on the weekend, breaks his ankle and then goes to the hospital ER to get it fixed. They send him over to a orthopedic surgeon. That is the longitudinal data. What is Joe Smith doing across multiple sites of service or multiple providers and stringing those together to see how does Joe access care within his community? That's kind of the gist of it. It sounds to me like it's longitudinal really reflects all of the sites of care within that health system itself, or is that also include maybe if they go to CVS or they go to other things outside of the industry? Is that what we're getting at here? Longitudinal data can mean uh, both. It can be both internally in a healthcare system, looking at all of the, the, the sites of service or departments that a individual encounters within the healthcare system, and then also stringing together other data sources in order to paint a picture of how a, a population is accessing care in a community. Okay, so that means that they could get into their credit card and see how many times they go to McDonald's. That's not happening yet, uh, from what I know of. But, I mean, it could be around the, the corner, and I think that's where you're seeing a lot of people starting to have angst and anxiety about their privacy and how they, how they uh, interact with the world around them since they are leaving a digital DNA trail behind them. And I think that's also where you're seeing uh, individuals start talking about GDPR 
if your audience knows about the the GDPR um, EU decision of late, how that will affect the U.S. healthcare system and what can we utilize in regards to uh, patient and non-patient data in order to market to them. I like that term digital DNA footprint because, I mean, that really speaks to the fact that we are, as individuals now, wherever we go, it's being tracked and organizations are starting to tie that together. And that's making it a little bit scary for people. Everyone thinks about, uh, of late, the Cambridge Analytica uh, debacle with Facebook. What Google has on us as we search on the internet every day, these things are so embedded in our lives, Instagram as well. We are leaving bits and pieces of data in our daily lives, and those companies are utilizing them in order to build profiles and pictures of who we are as individuals. And so when you think about all of that data that we have from our Fitbits to our Uber rides to our searches, it starts becoming a very, very robust and interesting data set that healthcare marketers could utilize uh, along with their EMR or uh, healthcare data on patients. As a matter of fact, I I would say it's even more powerful than what most of the um, technology companies have out there because we have such an intimate knowledge of patients. The marriage of those data sets, those different data sets into one is very, very intriguing and um, is one area that is going to be closely monitored pretty soon. I read somewhere that the term data brokers and privacy rights was on the rise of late in Google. People are starting to wake up the the notion of Neo waking up and realizing he is in the matrix is one that's is starting to gain momentum amongst patients and consumers as they realize that their their shadow selves, their their alternate selves in a digital realm or digital DNA is living and breathing and um, out there. And it's being brokered. It's being used by organizations to understand you better. Yeah. So what data brokers, uh, general term of data brokers is, is um, basically uh, organizations that compile, aggregate, and ingest data on behalf of potential consumers or, or customers. And sell them that data. Now, a lot of it is de-identified data. Uh, For healthcare especially, you start seeing uh, the healthcare claims that are being processed by these organizations that do billing uh, and claims. It is de-identified though, so it's no longer PHI under HHS and HIPAA. That that data is free reign as once it's de-identified, whether it's either one of the two methods that they do de-identification with, one of them is standard uh, safe harbor, the other one is expert certification or something like that. There's two methods of how they de-identify. That data is no longer anyone's personal data anymore. And it can be sold, it can be packaged, it can be uh, given to pharmaceutical companies, healthcare organizations, researchers and clinicians to give them broader data sets in order for them to run better trials for new drugs or new cures. So that's kind of the, the gist of, of, of data brokers. But they are out there, not just in like real life, like Cambridge Analytica, but also uh, in healthcare as well. The way you're describing it here in healthcare, it sounds like all of this is a good thing, right? I mean, we're de-identifying patient data and we're just brokering it to further advance positive things, right? Certainly is a negative side of this, is there? There definitely are two sides to every story. So I'll, I'll go with the good side first. Of late, there's some momentum building, like at HIMSS conferences, of speakers, individuals talking about how the usage of big data will help transform the healthcare system. And I truly believe that, I think, for the good. When you start looking at the traditional method of doing clinical trials is asking for volunteers, getting their consent, and running small samples. Well, with big data, you can actually grab thousands upon millions of diagnosis codes for individuals and to see these clinicians and researchers can start, could utilize this information to hone in on what's being effective, uh, how successful are they with certain diseases. On the flip side, what can somebody do in tailoring, you know, grabbing your digital DNA and monetizing it? You know, people 
are that's where the angst comes in. They are, am I am I missing out on something? Should it should I be compensated for for my digital footprint, even though technically it's not mine anymore once it's de-identified? But for right now, hospitals should look at their own data sources and additional data sources in order to paint a picture of what's going on in their marketplaces. I, I get that. You know, when you have this data that you, you want to use it responsibly in a way that actually can can help further advance your mission, I suppose. This naturally leads to how CRMs are evolving because, you know, the, the more data you get, clearly this has an impact on the CRM marketplace. So tell us a little bit about your, what you're seeing with CRMs in general and how all of this new data is sort of transforming and maybe evolving that space. As data scientist and chief marketing technologist, uh, I think all, all marketers should look towards that, those, 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 you know, honing in those skill sets of being a marketing technologist instead of just a, you know, defining themselves as marketers. So what that means is utilizing every single bit of information they can in order to make better decisions, whether it be in their investments of marketing, who they are targeting, who they are segmenting, how they are communicating, because we are starting to see a shift of people wanting personalization in their messaging, people wanting to to have an experience with the brands that they align with. And the more data that a organization has, the better they are in crafting those messages or crafting that content or experience and hopefully, you know, making the experience better for potential patients in the long run and maybe building up on the brand and maybe even affecting the HCAP scores in the end. I mean, who knows that, you know, that whole continuum of um, experience or in the healthcare realm, but going back to it, the utilization of data sources, whether they be internally or externally, as a healthcare marketer, you have to triangulate. If you're just utilizing your own data set, you are not realizing the potential of how you could effectively communicate with your patient populations, influence their behaviors, and also get the most bang for your buck because our marketing dollars are very limited and we have to make good decisions as we come under scrutiny on where we spend our dollars. I hear rise of this concept of an enterprise CRM Well, they, they certainly are trying to do this master data set, and they've been trying to do it for a while. Um, you're, you know, a lot of hospitals have informatics teams where those informatics teams are, are trying to do uh, what's called the master patient index across all of the EMRs. And they're realizing that as, they, as these large healthcare systems are growing or, or merging or JVing or taking over each other, they have all these disparate data sets. And how do you link all these different patients together? So um, you 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 are starting to see more and more interest of how AI and big data can help on that. But it's been happening. It, it you know informatics teams have tried to do this for a while. Where do you see the industry kind of heading? What are what are some of the future trends that we should be keeping an eye on? Really honing in on their use of EMR systems. Uh, you know, get, getting down to one specific EMR system as opposed to multiple across their, their, their enterprise. Um, as they look at their enterprise, uh, those EMR systems are the lifeblood of their business. So how do they tap into that for additional uses, not just with a CRM or marketing system, but also other applications such as finance or, or um, managed care? The, the better data set they have, the, the, the more able uh, they are to make better decisions. So that's that's the first thing. You know, getting down to a, a single record is one of the biggest priorities for healthcare systems right now. The second thing that that, that is kind of on the forefront is the use of, of data outside of healthcare systems. What are our moral and ethical uses for that data and information that we that we gain outside of the healthcare system. The reason why that's going to be a hot topic is because you know the GDPR recently passed companies are being under uh, are under more scrutiny about their data sources. So, you know, one of the things that I would highly recommend to 
you know, all of the, your listeners are, you know, some, three things. Number one, look at your data sources, do an audit of what you have on a consumer, make sure that it's secure and that you, you know what, where it is, that you have established protocols around it. Um, the second would be um, actually, so the second is embracing privacy. A lot of people are scared about, you know, being private with a customer and, or they're, they're concerned about how GDPR or other privacy regulations that are, that will soon come about affect their business. And one thing to, that they can do is embrace it. When you embrace it and you use it as a strategy, you are effectively telling your communities and, and audiences that you're okay with this, that, that you are confident in your abilities to keep their information private. And it increases, there, there, there are some thoughts that that would increase uh, confidence in healthcare systems, that it would lend to the fact that healthcare systems are in the forefront of keeping your information safe from um, individuals that would do harm against it, such as hackers or the black market. It, it, it builds trust, and when you build and you build on that that strategy of, of utilizing privacy, then it turns from a one way street into a two way communication. So now that an individual has specified, yes, I want to, you know, talk with you, and further, they've given you the the door, you know, to to their their communications, to talking with them. You can utilize that to your advantage. So that's the second thing that healthcare systems could do. The third is asking your data sources, the data sources that you use, the marketing vendors that you use, the CRM vendors, and and everyone in the industry, making sure that they are getting their sources from reputable sources themselves. Because if anything were to come down the pipe, like they, if they were in violation because they bought something, kind of like, it's almost like asking them, are these like blood diamonds? Is this a good diamond or a or a bad diamond? When they are gathering their data from unknown sources or against the will or against privacy rights, you are then possibly acceptable to downstream law. Just checking with your your data vendors. Where are you guys getting this information? Let's make sure that we are covered because it's a risk. If you are holding that that information as well, you want to make sure that you're safe and covered too and minimizing any risk that could befall your healthcare industry. Well, you know, and when you do that, when you go through and audit your your data sources and ensure that they're being compliant, that also is another message to the patients and also the community that you're you're tracking this data on in that you're being responsible and, and really wanting to secure that data and making sure that that data is sound and can, uh, you know, build that better data footprint that prevents your customers from thinking that, you know, you are building this weird matrix of knowledge around them without their permission. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the more that they get in front of this, the more that they become the flag bearers of keeping data, utilizing it uh, ethically, keeping their, their privacy at, you know, close to their, their hearts and, 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 and minds and being advocates for their community in regards to data, you then become a, a champion, and that 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 builds on the trust that you know. Hey, these these individuals, this organization is making sure that I'm being protected not only, but also in in a broader sense. With healthcare systems being some of the largest employers and largest organizations and communities ac- across the United States, that's a really important role. And if they can be on the front, if they can say, hey, we are doing this, if they can get ahead of that, um, like, you know, when you start going to websites now, you start seeing that, do you accept these cookies? We are tracking you. A lot of healthcare systems aren't doing that just yet because they, they legally, they don't have to. But if they start getting ahead of that and embracing that privacy as a strategy, you become a trusted organization. That's that's some really good advice. Clearly, you you spend a lot of time thinking about these things, Justin. Hey, if people that are listening in want to know a little bit about you, and what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, they can uh, reach out to me um, via LinkedIn is probably the, the the best way for them to get a hold of me. 
Absolutely. And we'll, we can also link to your, what's your, what's your company's website again? It's Trillion Health, like spelled like brilliant, but with a T. By the way, at trillionhealth.com, you have a really good blog going on, the Trillion Health blog, which a lot of great insights around data, around analytics, and, and basically, you know, all the, the different trends and things that are happening. It's definitely worth uh, keeping track of and reading. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, no problem, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right, wrapping up episode number 81 on data personalization, all the good stuff around data personalization. Special thanks to Justin Rodriguez. Like always, it's nice to have a true expert in the room talking about things that uh, obviously he spends his everyday waking hours working on. Justin is, is this one smart guy. And if you ever have the pleasure of reaching out to him, which I encourage you guys to do, you can learn a lot about not only data, but about CRMs. And, and he's, he's worked with like virtually every major health system around <laughs> CRMs. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, he's got a good LinkedIn profile. Absolutely. Should go uh, connect with him for sure. Uh, feel free to reach out. It's one of the nicest guys I've uh, had the pleasure of working with over the years. So uh, please reach out to him and connect. Before we get to uh, recommendations, maybe a couple of places we're going to be. We've mentioned this a couple of different times. The first one, or the next one, I should say, Chris and I, uh, conference Chris and I will be attending is the Atlas Conference uh, brought to you by Kairos. It is uh, on patient access, and this year's theme is on systemness, and uh, we'll be in Boston, October 15 through 17. October 15 through 17, uh, you can check out the website, atlasconference.com. And if you happen to work at a hospital, if you happen to work at a hospital and you want to go register online, use the uh, code TOUCHPOINT50 for half off your registration fees. And then the following month, Reed, we're going to be finding ourselves in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Healthcare Internet Conference, mm-hmm. a conference that's held annually by our good friends over at Greystone. Yes. Um, that's November 5th through the 7th. And you can learn a lot more about that conference and sign up if you go over to www.hcic.net. There you go. And then finally, the next week, so also in uh, in November, is uh, the annual conference for the uh, Mayo Clinic Social Media Network. Uh, that's at their Jacksonville, Florida campus location. That'll be the 14th and 15th, I believe, of November. There's also a residency, uh, which is kind of an introduction to a lot of things, uh, on the 13th, I believe, the day, day preceding the annual conference. Uh, and they have a number of those throughout the year. And so they're coupling one of those with their annual conference. So more to come there, what, what we'll actually be doing. But uh, Chris and I have been very fortunate to be part of that since its inception uh, as advisors and always enjoy uh, seeing everybody and meeting up there. So uh, lots of great things. If you guys are going anywhere doing anything, let us know. Uh, if you're going to be to do these conferences, we'd certainly like to uh, connect and visit. So yeah, there you go. Well, what do you have uh, for a recommendation today? Well, Reed, recently it's been kind of hot up here. I know it's been hot down where you're at. And in the summertime, when it's a hot day, usually there's a couple of ways to beat the heat. Uh, one that you know I always think about from when I was a kid is just getting a nice ice cream cone, right? On a, yeah. on a nice hot day, just getting some ice cream. But, you know, one of the things that I found as I've gotten older, Reed, is that I've developed a sort of an intolerance to lactose, right? So I can't really eat ice cream mm. like in the olden days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So luckily, people that, that make ice cream have developed a, a new type of ice cream that's made out of coconut milk. And I am going to recommend one of my favorite non-dairy pints of ice cream, that is from our friends up at Ben and Jerry's. Oh, weren't we just talking about them, like moving to Vermont or something? Is that where they are? <laughs> we were. I'm going to move to Vermont yeah, and get 10 grand or something. Uh, for those that don't know right. what I'm talking about, that's a few episodes back. Ben and Jerry's ice cream, they, they have the non-dairy flavors of Cherry Garcia or right. Chunky Monkey, some of their regular flavors. But my favorite ice cream of theirs, it's a, a, a non-dairy pint, is the peanut butter and cookies. Mm. Imagine this peanut butter and Oreo cookies crunched up inside of some nice, great ice cream. There's nothing like 
uh, a scoop of that ice cream on top of a gluten-free sugar cone. See, now there we go. They actually do have gluten-free sugar cones, but but that's beside the point. But nothing like a scoop of some uh, non-dairy peanut butter and uh, cookies. Ben and Jerry's ice cream for me. That's that's what my summers are all about now. It does sound good, actually. I'm going to go a little different direction. I've recommended uh, lots of, well, I say a lot, a number of pins and writing utensils over the last 80 episodes. Uh, I'm going to re- recommend another one. So I've mentioned before, and I think it was actually a recommendation of mine sometime back. I don't really remember when. Uh, a Sherpa pen cover. And so these are, mm. you know, so it's a, it looks like a pen, but you unscrew it and you actually, instead of a refill, you insert an entire pen into this capsule, if you will. Uh, and it becomes a, it's a way to make your cheap pen fancy looking, right? And so I mean, I've recommended that historically. And it holds a number of different things like Sharpies and different pens and all that. So I'm always looking for new pens that fit in this particular pen cover because I like to carry it around. And I found one and, and coincidentally really like the pen. It's kind of an interesting writing utensil. Anyway, it's by uh, Uniball, which everybody's familiar with. And it's their Vision Elite series, which sounds really fancy. But anyway, a Vision Elite by Uniball. But they have a new one. It's the Vision Elite BLX. Now, I didn't really realize that when I picked up this package, I started kind of looking at it. But the BLX stands for, or they, or it's there because they are black infused colors. So when you get them, like what I got is a blue black. So it's like a really, really dark blue. Uh, they also have brown black, green black, purple black, red black. And so you can get them in these different black infused, which I don't really quite understand. I'm assuming the red black is more like a maroon color, but uh, I really like this blue black color. Anyway, it's a rollerball style pin. Uh, it's a capped pin because that's what you need for these particular pin covers. Uniball uh, Vision Elite BLX. I, I really like a uh, darker colored ink as well. I might have to check that out. The blue black. All right. Well, another good episode. Um, again, thank you very much for listening. Appreciate the support. If you will go rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. That is the very way that other people find us, uh, at least in a lot of cases. So it means a lot, uh, not just to us personally, but also allows uh, others to find us online. We would appreciate that and checking out the other shows over at touchpoint.health. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.